Welcome to the New England Law Review On Demand podcast. I'm Volume 49's Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newengnglrev.com. There you can find our most recent online publication in On Demand, entitled Chapter 9 Bankruptcy of Detroit and the Pension Problem by Marissa A. Wiseman. Today we are discussing a recent Massprim Digest blog post on Commonwealth v. Badger, decided August 14, 2014. The Massprim Digest, formerly known as the Massachusetts Criminal Digest, was the New England Law Review's online case summary database that provided citable, straightforward summaries of recent criminal law cases decided by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, or SJC. In 2014, the Massprim Digest was retired. Those summaries of cases decided by the SJC under Articles 12 and 14 of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights are still provided through our editor blog. We are joined by a Volume 49 comment and note editor, Tamlin Flaherty, to discuss her Massprim Digest blog post about Commonwealth v. Badger, citation of which is 469 Mass 425, again decided on August 14, 2014. Catherine, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. To start us off, could you tell us whether this was an Article 12 or 14 case? This was an Article 14 case. Great, thank you. Could you give us a brief description of the facts that led up to this decision? So this was a murder case um, in which a 16-year-old named Jordan Mendez was murdered and his body was found burning in a pit in Hyannis. Um, He had been stabbed 21 times in the neck and face and shot in the chest. The defendant, Robert Batcher, had spent the night before the murder with the victim and two friends, Charlie and John. Batcher and his friends had spent time on the night of the murder test driving a vehicle, and the next day the defendant had purchased a vehicle with cash. They had been seen with the new car and a gas can in their possession. And two days after the victim's body was found, and it had been found with traces of gasoline accelerant, the defendant took a drive with a friend during which he admitted to the murder. Shortly after leaving his friends, the defendant was arrested, read his Miranda rights, and taken to the police station to discuss the homicide. And during the interrogation, he had lied about where he had been at the time of the murder. So, one of the issues considered by the court was whether to recognize target standing under Article 14 of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights, which would have been a first for the SJC. The concept has been rejected by the United States Supreme Court, but the SJC had previously indicated that it was leaving open the possibility of theory being valid under Article 14. Could you describe what target standing is and give us an idea of how the court looked at this issue? So target standing is the idea that the real target of a police investigation would have standing to assert a violation of his co-venturers or co-conspirators' constitutional rights, um, and they would do this when they're litigating their own motion to suppress. So the court provided an example to explain this concept, which is um, unconstitutional police conduct directed at small fish intentionally undertaken in order to catch big ones may have to be discouraged by allowing the big fish, when they're caught, to rely on the violations of the rights of the small fish, as to whose prosecution the police are relatively indifferent. So the defendant here couldn't prove that he was the prime target or the big fish in the investigation, so they denied, the court denied his target standing challenge. Just as a refresher, who was he trying to assert the rights of, or in other words, who were the little fish in the investigation? So the little fish were his two friends that he had been spending the day with, so the people that he had gone to purchase the car with. So those would be Charlie and John R. are their names. And so the police um, had information that suggested that Charlie and John R. were both connected to the crime 
so and that they could have played a significant role in the death. So they were both considered actually big fish. Um, so they were all big fish and all targets of the investigation. Thank you. The second issue the court addressed was a challenge from the defendant based on the prosecution's reliance on immunized witnesses. The defendant argued that this reliance undermined both his federal and state constitutional rights. Could you explain why the court ruled that this was not the case? In Massachusetts, immunized testimony alone can't be used to convict a defendant, but in this case, there was testimony from non-immunized witnesses that corroborated the testimony from the immunized witnesses. And the judge had instructed the jury that they could consider the witness's immunity in determining their credibility, and they were also told that they couldn't convict solely on the basis of the immunized witness testimony. So because they had the non-immunized witness testimony as well that corroborated the immunized witness testimony, it was okay. It was not prejudicial to the defendant. So a third issue that they raised in this case was whether testimony of a police officer identifying the defendant on surveillance footage was properly admitted. Could you walk us through the court's analysis on this issue? So the lower court had allowed the police officer's testimony that identified the defendant as the person in the convenience store surveillance footage. And the SJC found that this testimony was improperly admitted because they can only admit this sort of testimony if the witness was more likely than the jury to correctly ID the defendant in the surveillance footage. And so because the jury was just as capable as the witness to make this ID, it was improper to admit the testimony. But they actually found that this testimony was not prejudicial to the defendant because the defendant himself had admitted that he was in the convenience store that night anyway. So it didn't end up really mattering that the police officer had identified him in the video. Great, thank you. The last issue for the court was whether the Superior Court erred in failing to issue jury instructions pursuant to Commonwealth v. D. John Batista, and whether this failure was prejudicial to the defendant. These instructions are meant to be given when evidence of a confession obtained during an interrogation is introduced, but the confession is not recorded. They inform the jury of the state's preference for recording interrogations and caution the jury to weigh the evidence with great care. Could you explain to us the court's reasoning for finding the Superior Court's failure to give this instruction, while in error, was not prejudicial to the defendant? So the Superior Court's failure to give this instruction was not prejudicial to the defendant, even though it was in error, because the recording in question, even though it was incomplete, they still included the interrogator's introduction and a notification to the defendant that they were recording the conversation and the defendant's Miranda waiver. So because all of this information was included, the jury was still able to determine the voluntariness of the defendant's statements. So ultimately, what do you think the real impact of this case is for practitioners? The real impact of this case is probably that it opens up the possibility for target standing to be a viable theory under Article 14. So even though the court didn't really rule on whether this theory was recognized, the decision implied in a way it could be available in future cases. Great, that'll be really interesting to see play out in the future. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss this case, Commonwealth v. Badger, Catherine. Thank you for having me. To find out more about the case and access the case summary blog post, access our website at www.newengrev.com. Our homepage contains all of our blog posts, and under the Archives tab at the top bar, the Mass Cream Digest and all related blog posts are accessible directly. Additionally, Volume 48, Book 4 is newly available under the Current Issue tab on the top bar. And information about our upcoming Spring Symposium discussing Adam Tanner's book, What Stays in Vegas, The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It is also available.
I'm Volume 49, Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Levin Podcast.